whole thing. So feel free to follow along as I read Romans 9, 1 through 33. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God's failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonored use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on the works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it's written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, please pray with me. Our good Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to understand what this long and difficult text means and what it says to us. Show us Jesus. Show us your mercy. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm pretty sure all of us have heard some version of Lauren Isley's little story, The Star Thrower, 
been adapted about a million times. And uh, sort of the popular adaptation runs this way. There's a man who likes to go to the beach to do his writing. He shows up early one morning, takes his normal stroll, and as he strolls, he notices this little creature out there, seems to be dancing, and it amuses him that someone will be out dancing to welcome the day. So he chases after him and then discovers it's not someone dancing. It's a little boy, actually, and he's bending over, not dancing, and he's picking up these things and throwing them into the ocean. He says, little boy, what are you doing? And the little boy says, throwing starfish into the ocean. Little boy, why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? The little boy says, well, the sun's going to come up, tide's going to go out, and they're all going to die. And the man says, boy, don't you realize that there are miles and miles of ocean, thousands and thousands of starfish. You can't possibly save them all. And the boy, as you probably know, bends over and picks up one, throws it high into the air, and as it hits the water, he says, it makes a difference to that one. It's a great story. It's inspiring, right? It's meant to be inspiring. That in a world with all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of pain and suffering, that we can make a small but true difference in the world. It's a great story. I want to change the story a little bit. What if you're not the boy? What if you're the starfish? What if you are helpless on the beach, completely dependent on the mercy of someone else to throw you back into life? Because that's sort of the picture that we have here in Romans 9. It's not one that we like very much. We don't like being dependent, for sure. We don't like the idea that we can't get life on our own. And, and Paul's wrestling with this, that there are people who should know the way to life, and they've rejected it. And he wants to know why is it. And what he ends up explaining to us, although it's hard, it's good, it's that there is a way to life through God's mercy, that salvation is by God's sovereign mercy. This thing really comes together, but I'm going to talk about the two facets of it, that, that we're saved, that salvation is by God's sovereign choice. That's what most of this text is about. And then secondly, how it's about mercy, how we're saved by mercy. Now, I just need to explain the backdrop. I said at the beginning that this thing was a difficult text. It's difficult for lots of reasons, because we're dealing with issues of human responsibility, fate, the nature of human contingency in this world. Uh, you know, we've been arguing about this as humans as long as we've been able to think and write. The Greeks wrestled with this, with the fates. We've been wrestling with this up to this day. Theologically, we've been wrestling with this for thousands of years. How responsible is God? How responsible are we? Is he truly sovereign in control of everything? Or do we have real responsibility too? And these debates tend to produce more heat than light. And... Uh, in the end, we're, we're wrestling with, with paradoxes and mysteries. For Paul, it's a, it's a little more painful because what we have here is a story. This happens in the midst of a story, a real story, that of Israel, who received God's promises. That's what the first five verses are about, if you look up there. Uh, Israel has received God's promises. They had received, through Abraham, the promise that there would be a blessing to the world. One old dude who was a pagan, God chose him and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and you will bless the world. Through your descendants, you will bless the world. And what's happened is they've received all these promises and blessings. He names about eight of them. And uh, now that the culmination of those promises, the person of Jesus has come, the true blessing to the nations, those people who originally received the promise, the Jews, have by and large, their exceptions, rejected him. They've rejected him. And, and Paul is in deep 
painful anguish. He says, if I could be accursed for their sake, I would. I can't, but I could. I, I, I could give myself and my pain for them. And, and Paul wants to know what's the hope for these folks. Why is it like this? And, and how is it that they or we can find salvation? And his explanation begins in verse 6, and it starts with that we are saved, that salvation comes by God's sovereign choice. That is his perfect, kingly, infallible choice. That God is the king of the universe, makes a choice. And uh, I'm going to assume this is offensive to you. If you're not offended yet, you probably will be offended later. We'll get there. But um, he begins in verse 6 by saying that this is God's choice. And he tells the story of Abraham. He he says the, the word of God has not failed. And what he's speaking of is the promise to Abraham. The promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations and a blessing. And what's happened is Jesus has come. It seems like the promise has been fulfilled. But those to whom the promise was originally given, the Jews, they seem to have rejected it. Has the promise then failed? And Paul says no. And then he explains why. He says in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And he goes on and explains in verse 7 and then in verses 10 and 11 the way this works. That Abraham was supposed to have a son. You can't have a whole bunch of nations and a whole bunch of peoples come from you unless you have at least one child. And he received this promise as an old man, and he waited, and nothing happened. And during this time, while he waited, all the stuff that's supposed to work to make babies stopped working. Well, before that, though, he actually got a little ambitious and tried to make things happen on his own. So he grabbed his concubine and had a baby, Ishmael. And God comes to him and says, not that boy, the boy I'm going to give you, even though none of your plumbing works anymore. And so God provides him a son, Isaac. And what, what Paul is saying here is what God says, it's not about just physical descent. It's not just because you're his daddy, Abraham. It's, the, it's because of the promise I'm making. It's by virtue of the choice. And in case we don't get it, he gives another example, Isaac's own children. And he gives the example of uh, Jacob and Esau. This is even a little more startling, perhaps, for us. They're both physical descendants of Isaac. They're born within minutes of each other. They're twin boys. Not only that, um, God's preferential choice actually goes against the cultural norm. The cultural norm is the blessing goes to the older son, which was Esau. And God actually says, no, I prefer that one. And so he's making the case, Paul is, that God has the right and does choose. In verse 11, We read, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So it doesn't really matter what they did. It's God's modus operandi that he sovereignly chooses. Or at least he has in the story thus far. And why is this? And then Paul begins to say, you know, I know know where you're going with this. You're going to say, man, that's just not fair. That's not just. And he, he raises that question himself in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? And Paul says, absolutely not. No, he's not. And actually, while you're an issue of justice, God's merciful. You want to have a discussion about justice, but I want to talk about mercy. So he asks the question, is God unjust? And he says, by no means. Moses says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is the way this discussion tends to work. We'll say, God's being unjust. And uh, God and Paul are saying, well, what are you talking about justice for? 
it's not up to human will or exertion. It's not about what you do. It's about will God show mercy and compassion or not. In other words, salvation is not on the basis of justice. Salvation is on the basis of mercy. And to prove that point, he gives us an example from Israel's history again. We were here last year studying Exodus. If you were here, I I felt like it was like, I thought it was fun. It was like an adventure narrative, epic, destruction, plagues. It was awesome. Maybe you didn't think so. But um, anyway, what you have in that story are, are two nations, both of whom are not all that great, Egypt and Pharaoh and then Israel. And um, what we find is God repeatedly coming to Pharaoh and saying, hey, let my people go. My son or your son? If you don't give me my son, Israel, I'm taking your son. And Pharaoh, the text tells us over and over again, hardens his heart. At the same time, the text tells us God hardened his heart. Basically, God let him harden his heart. He abandoned him and said, you want to harden your heart and not listen to me? So be it. Uh, And so he lets Israel and Pharaoh get what's coming to them. And he exercises mercy on Israel. You see, Israel deserved no, no better. They deserved no better. There was nothing about them. He tells them this over and over in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You're a stiff-necked, stubborn people. Like, I, I actually don't know why I'm bearing with you. You, you. you deserve to be destroyed. But I'm going to be merciful and gracious to you. And so he is. And so that's the point he makes here in verse 18. God then has mercy on whomever he wills, and he heartens whom he wills. So what we're boiling it down to here then is this. We're going to ask, is God unjust because he chooses some to receive mercy and not others? And the wonder, really, when you understand the nature of humanity, is not that some are saved and some aren't. The wonder is that, given who we are as people, that anybody is saved at all. If it's a matter of justice, and that's what we are asking, is God unjust? If it's a matter of justice, if you want, be, if you want God to be just, no one is saved. If you want justice, no one is saved. But it's a matter of mercy. And God is merciful to some. And that's a wonder. It's a wonder that God is merciful to some. And then the question is raised here in verse 19. You'll say to me then, why does he find fault? If it's up to God, how can he hold us accountable? How can we be held accountable for what we do if the choice is really up to God? And the answer is, you know, God makes a choice. It's based on his righteous, judging, perfect, merciful character. And he has the right to do so. And and Paul answers this question, how does he have the right, with two questions. Who are you and who is God? And the who are you is sort of a, who do you you think you are asking God this kind of question? If you look carefully, he, he asks in verse 20, 21, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what's molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? I want to take a second real quick to say, this text is not saying you should not ask God hard questions. Uh, this text is not saying you shouldn't ask questions of doubt. Paul asks, I don't know, I'm going to guess 20 questions in this chapter, maybe 10. But he asks dozens and dozens of questions in Romans. If you have genuine questions of doubts and sincere questions of confusion, those are welcome. That's how you actually figure things out. If your question is accusatory by nature, if you are putting God on the witness stand and calling him to witness and asking him questions, uh, God has no right to answer you. 
you have no right to ask him that. And uh, what Paul's asking is, who do you think you are? And uh, one of my pastor friends put it this way. What we are is we're turtles on a fence post. I used this illustration years ago. Maybe some of you remember it. But if you see a turtle, and you don't because we live in the city, you don't see fence posts or turtles. But I grew up in the country where you see both of those all the time. You usually see the turtles dead on the road. But occasionally you see them on the fence post, and that's a little bit cruel, actually. But when you do, you say, oh, that turtle didn't get there on its own. Who put that there? Turtles don't get on top of a fence post by themselves. And his statement is, we are turtles on a fence post. None of us put ourselves here. If I stop and say, how did I get here? Like, even right this moment, how did I get here? Most of the factors that contributed to my being right here were not things I chose. I did not choose this era to be born in. I didn't. I didn't choose to be born in 1975 to two parents. I didn't choose to to, to grow up in the home of Christians. I didn't choose my ethnicity, my gender, my genes. I worked really, really hard for for 18 years to change my body type. Like, I can't change my height, but maybe I could, like, get bigger. 15 pounds in, like, 18 years. Like, I, I, I am, I just can't change that much. Just can't. There are so many things about me and about you that you did not choose that make you who you are. And we, many of us are deeply offended by this idea, like, that God would choose and we don't have the right to choose. Your deep-rooted, part of this is human nature, but your deep-rooted assumption that you should have the right to choose everything ironically, is the result of something you didn't choose. Follow me on this. Pretty much only 21st century, 20th and 21st century, 20th and 21st century Americans would hold that belief that I should have the right to choose all the important things in my life. Throughout human history, you really haven't had the right to choose your education, what you want to do in life, where you want to live. You just, it was, you were dealt life and you, and you, you dealt with it. You didn't have the right to choose these things. But we think we have the right to choose everything. And if you think you have the right to choose anything, it's actually because of something you didn't choose, to be born at this time in this place. Really strange, isn't it? That's who we are. One among seven billion people that are living now, among billions of others who have existed, and that's not to say you're insignificant, but you're not the center of the universe. And God is. He's the great king, and he has the right to choose. That's who we are. Who is he? He's the God who has the right to choose, who has the right to show justice when he wants to show justice and show mercy when he wants to show mercy. Now, as offensive as that might be to some of you, and I assume it's offensive to all, I mean, it's offensive to me too. I think it's true. It's offensive. Uh, I think what he says next probably offended the original hearers even more. The original readers probably didn't like that, but they were like, okay, we got it. What he says next probably offended them more, which is that salvation is not just a matter of God's choice, but of mercy. Mercy alone. And here he really gets up into them and into us. Uh, because mercy is scandalous. It's not just scandalous because he, he shows some mercy to some people and not to others. It's scandalous because, as verse 16 says, it does not take into account your works, your will, your effort. It doesn't take into account all the things that you and our society value so much. How hard you work, how well you do. Mercy doesn't look at those things. It doesn't care about those things. That is deeply, scandalously offensive to us. We're a, a nation and a people of performers and producers. And we don't like this. 
And it's scandalous to us because it means that God's going to end up picking people unexpectedly, like people that we would not expect and people who don't deserve it. So unexpected, we see in verses 24 through 26, Paul says, you know, God ends up choosing among some of us Jews and Gentiles. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm a Gentile. I saw on Facebook that if you have this certain kind of toe thing, like your second toe is like this, then you're probably Celtic. And if it's like this, then you're probably Greek. And because I believe everything on Facebook, that means I'm probably Celtic or Celtic and I'm not a Jew. I was supposed to be a joke. I, I'm sure I'm not a Jew. And I'm sure most of you aren't either. Some of you are, perhaps, and that's great. My, fam- my wife's family actually has some Jewish heritage. But for, for the faithful Jews of the day, they, they couldn't imagine the scenario that's happened. That God's blessings have come largely to a Gentile world that wasn't even looking for it. In, in verse 30, he, he, he says it this way. Uh, what shall we say that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? And, and Paul is speaking euphemistically. I mean, he's, he's being kind. When he says the Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness, he's not, he's not telling you the whole truth. He's like... It's like, you know those Gentiles, right? I mean, they're crazy. If you want to know how crazy they are, go read the book of Corinthians. The Gentiles. God's mercy has come to a bunch of people where in the church, one dude is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And uh, they're getting drunk at church. And they're fighting over who's the leader in church. It's a madhouse. It's a mess. It's crazy. And that's better than the way it is outside the church doors. Like, it's complete self-serving, self-gratifying, licentious madness. They were not looking for righteousness at all, and mercy came to them. And there are going to be people that say, I don't want to be a part of that. And Paul is saying to them and to us, this is a challenge for you. There are going to be all kinds of people that God brings to himself that you're not going to like. One of my friends put it this way, they're going to be rich and poor, posh and the homeless, conservatives and liberals, Greeks and geeks, rednecks and hipsters, you name it. They're going to be there. God showing his mercy to all kinds of people and bringing them in. And if you're offended by that, if you're offended by the, the reality that God's going to show mercy and bring people that you really don't like into his family, that might reveal in your heart something very dangerous. The tendency to think that your rightness with God depends on your performance. You see, if you're the kind of person that really easily looks down on a certain group of people and thinks you're better than them, chances are you're trying to establish your rightness compared to their wrongness. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Because Paul's making the argument here that not a single person deserves anything but judgment. That none of us deserve anything approaching God's mercy. And that uh, God's mercy comes rich and free to all kinds of people who don't deserve it. And if you think you're right, just because you think you're better than someone else, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. It's a false righteousness. And it's not helping you in any way get closer to the real God. So God's mercy comes in unexpected ways to unexpected people. And lastly, it comes to those that don't deserve it. And this is really clear from verses 26 to the end. He talks about two groups of people, really. He talks about the Jews, who God had made promises to, and he ends up saying, um, you guys were so unfaithful that if I, if I hadn't spared you a remnant, if I hadn't been merciful to you, even though you didn't deserve it, 
you to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is something that happened at the very beginning of the Bible. And it was such a complete judgment that it still resonates now, thousands of years later. Even if you don't know much about the Bible, you're Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're like, that was some bad thing where God like destroyed everything. That's right. And, and, and the point here is God saying to Israel, you deserved that treatment. You deserved it, but I was merciful to you and spared some. You didn't deserve it. And he goes on and then says, and then there are Gentiles who weren't looking for me at all, and they found mercy. They found righteousness. This is in verse 30, and this is important. If you've hated 60% of what I've said so far, that's not good. But hear this, please. That those who are not pursuing righteousness, i.e., those who are living it up, having a great time with no care or concern or thought for God's pleasure whatsoever, they found it anyway. That they found God's righteousness. And meanwhile, there were others working really hard to do everything right in order to know God and please God, to be right, and they failed to attain it. And Paul asked why. He asked literally in verse 32, why is this? How can some people not try it all and live it up and God declares them righteous. Some people can work so hard and so diligently and so faithfully and not attain it. He says in verse 30, it's because of the way they tried to do it. Some people received it by faith, and some people tried to work for it. And if you try to work for it, you will fall short. There's two ways to righteousness. The Bible makes this pretty clear. You can obey the law perfectly. The problem is you can't. Or you can trust the one that did. You can trust Jesus, who came as the perfect Israelite, lived a perfect life, fulfilled righteousness, and then out of mercy went to the cross for you to bear the judgment you deserve. And then when you trust him, you get his righteous credit. Those are the two ways to be righteous. Perfectly fulfill the law, which you can't, or trust the one that was righteous and be treated like righteous accordingly. And what Jesus is saying, and what Paul's saying here in verse 32 and 33 is, it's the nature of some. And I'm actually talking to you church kids. <laughs> like, you who grow up in the church, you're more, you're more prone to this than the others um, because of the way you've heard, the way you're supposed to live. You are approaching Jesus saying, look at all the good stuff I've done, Jesus. Look at all this right stuff I've done, Jesus. And Paul is warning you, you cannot rest in Jesus with that. You will stumble over him. You will stumble over him. He has to forgive you your sin and your righteousness. All your good, righteous things that you think please God, that make you better than others, they will not save you. It is only his mercy. Uh, I'm going to close with this. It's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great preacher, and he believed both of these things I've been talking about. And he, he says, the man who clings to his own righteousness, his own sense of rightness, is like a man who grasps a millstone to prevent himself from sinking in a flood. Your righteousness will damn you if you trust in it as surely as your sins will because it's a false, proud lie. If you think your sense of rightness, all the good things you do will save you, it's a false, proud lie. And then he goes on and says, I don't know of anything against which God's fury burns more than against this kind of self-righteousness. Because this touches God in a very tender spot. It insults the glory and honor of his son, Jesus. It's very important. 
It insults the honor and glory of his son, Jesus. Why? Do you think God's own son took the trouble to come to earth, bear flesh, live 33 years, suffer persecution, live a righteous life, and die on your sake so you can try to save yourself? No. No. It's his mercy that comes to you completely undeserved. And it's something that's offered to you tonight. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we have here, as I said at the beginning, what is a 